Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So, John chapter 6, if you have your Bible. Morning, John 6, 14 through 21. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come to, into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down the sea, down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. You know, two weeks ago, I spent some time away with a group of pastors uh, away in the desert, and I'm a bit of an introvert, and when you're staying under one roof with a half dozen other guys, uh, it means that although the time is really good together, that I'm quickly looking for an opportunity to escape and to process and have some quiet. And so the easiest and most convenient way for that to happen was me just to get up a little bit earlier and go for a morning run along these desert trails off on my own, which was really refreshing. However, there was a lot of wind early in the morning out in the desert. And so me running to get towards these desert trails, I remember one of the mornings leaving the house and starting to run, and there was a wind that was pushing from the west against my face and blowing sand up against me as I was running out to the trail. But then I took a little left turn, and all of a sudden, the wind was no longer so bad. It, it, it felt initially like, well, I'm sure that the wind has just died down and I'm not having to deal with it. And then I looked at my mile time a couple miles into my run and thought, man, I'm really moving well today. Like, I'm feeling good. But then I turned around to head back and quickly realized the wind hadn't ceased. It just felt good to have it at my back pushing me ahead. But now the slog of trying to go the couple miles back to this house was rather difficult with the wind pushing against me and my mile time quickly jumping by more than a, a minute per mile as I was slogging my way, going through this grueling push against the wind to get back to where we, where we were staying. Now, for some of us, we would think that there's a bit of a metaphor for life in that, that there are moments, and for most of us, we'd say that they're few and far between, where it feels like the wind is at our back and most things come with little effort or with at least very little straining, but that much of life feels like we're running into the wind, where it does take some extra effort and we have to push hard and gosh, it wears us out, but we'd like to think that if we push hard enough, we can actually get our desired outcome. We can reach the goal or get what we've wanted. It's just that we need a little bit of extra effort. However, when you've lived some life, you start to realize how naive that is. You realize it's less, life is less like running in the wind as it is like the guys that that same windy day I watched try to paddleboard in the wind. You see, the desert place that we were staying was on a small man-made lake, and it ran east to west, and some guys jumped on paddle boards, and with absolute ease and barely even pushing and moving the water beneath them, they moved from one side of the lake to the next because the wind was at their back. 
But it was well over an hour later where we even spotted them making any progress at all, coming back our direction. In fact, they wouldn't make it back to the house that we were staying until the wind had completely died down. Because when on water, rather than just on dry ground, when the wind is against you, it's difficult, if not impossible, to make any progress at all. I think if we're honest, we have a tendency to look at other people and assume that their life is lived on on dry ground, that their life is lived with them needing to push through and persevere. And when things go wrong in their life, we're quick to assume that it's probably because they're either lazy or foolish. We can be frustrated with others and think, why aren't they just doing things the way that I think they should or trying a little bit harder? They just need to kick it into gear, we say as they make their run through life. But we view our own life different because some of us have faced enough adversity that we realize and are ready to admit that sometimes the little extra effort won't get us where we really wanna go because life isn't really like a journey on land at all. It's more like a voyage at sea where you and I find ourselves at the mercy of forces and circumstances outside of our control. Like a boat in open water being tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves. In fact, I had a conversation just this week with someone I dearly love, and the conversation was talking about how sometimes in life we can't make things turn out the way that we had hoped for, that sometimes in life we have to let go of the way that we had dreamed that things would be, and we have to yield to the reality that is very much outside of our control. But in those moments, the fight for the follower of Jesus is is that we know that it's true that we can still find comfort and peace in knowing that someone who has control of what I cannot control is at the helm. Chaos is not at the helm of my life. My gracious, sovereignly wise, heavenly Father is. You see, I think life is kind of like sometimes a voyage at sea. And today what we find is Jesus' friends in a storm out on the Sea of Galilee, this lake, there in the Middle East. Remember the last time we were together, we discussed the feeding of the 5,000, where Matthew's gospel tells us that there were also women and children present, more than 5,000 in attendance, but the overwhelming majority of the crowd were men. In fact, John seems to make clear what other people had hinted at, that these men were looking for someone to lead a revolution and throw off the oppressive government of the Romans over top of them. John even tells us here in what was just read to you that the crowd wants to make Jesus their king. They want him to take the throne in their timing and in their way, but Jesus refuses, and when he does, the crowd turns their backs on him. Now, the disciples actually seem to share the disappointment that the crowd felt because in Mark's gospel account that records this, because this story is recorded also by Mark, by John, yes, and by Matthew, When Mark records it, it says that Jesus made the disciples get in the boat just as he made the crowd crowd depart and Jesus went off on his own. When he made them get into the boat and leave, it's communicating that he used force, that he forced them against their will. They wanted to stay with the crowd and were willing to fight for Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus lead this revolution against the Romans. They too were jacked up and hyped up, but Jesus gave them no other option So on to the boat and away from the shore, they floated. But Jesus in the story, all three accounts make it very clear, he does not go with them. Instead, Jesus climbs up on a hillside overlooking the lake and begins to pray according to Matthew and Mark's account. 
While the storm arrives, and in Matthew 14, verse 24, it says, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the lake, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary to them. It was blowing against them and pushing them off course. They're straining, it says in Mark's gospel. It's the same word, uh, or when it's used there, it says that they're tormented. Same word that's found in other places in Mark's gospel and translated tormented by the wind. It's the term that's legion, the demon-possessed man. Remember, used when legion, the demon, says to Jesus, don't torment me. That's what they're dealing with. They're wiped out and exhausted by what they're facing. This little lake there is about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. It sits actually almost 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's a very unique place where the typography around it creates the ultimate little microclimate where you have the Mediterranean just miles away to the west and it blows this warm, humid air. And as it hits the Sea of Galilee, this little lake to the east of it are these high ridges, these mountains, where cool, crisp air is coming down from the Golan Heights and collides with that warm, humid air, creating this microcosm, this, this little storm cell that's just waiting to erupt constantly. Even today, storms seem to come almost out of nowhere with little to no warning. Storms that push waves at heights of almost six feet. Storms that push even modern boats up against the rocks in moment. And there were Jesus and his disciples in this predicament. Although Jesus wasn't with them, he's watching them, it says. From atop one of those hills on the east side of the Galilee where they were at, from atop that hill, you could see down and either see at least halfway into the lake or even all the way to the other side, because it's only at that part about six miles across. And so Jesus from high above there, he's praying. And if it's telling you that Jesus is praying and it's alluding to you that he's probably able to see them and later will come down to them, then it seems very safe to assume that Jesus isn't just up there with his eyes closed praying for himself, but that his eyes are open and he's very aware of what's going on in their situation, that they're in a storm and he's praying for them too. My friends, I'm really thankful, so thankful for Jesus' earthly ministry, but I'm also thankful for Jesus' heavenly ministry. And what I mean by that is I'm so thankful for the earthly ministry of Jesus that you get to see in the Gospels where Jesus does all of these wonderful and amazing things that reveal his care and character and power. But I'm also so thankful for what Scripture says he ever lives today to do in his heavenly ministry. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. My friends, we have heaven's ear, and as followers of Jesus who have been rescued and redeemed by him, we also have heaven's heart turns toward us, turn towards us as Jesus intercedes for us. Now, John's gospel doesn't tell us how the guys react to the miracle sign of Jesus coming to them. It only tells us that when Jesus stepped onto the boat, that they immediately were at their destination. Mark chapter 6, though, however, gives us insight into how they reacted when this all went down. It says that they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. This is beginning, it seems, in the Gospels to look like a pattern, where Jesus does something that's like otherworldly, categorically different, out, out of this world, impossible even, and the disciples are seen with their mouths hanging open. But the real pattern is that they still don't seem to fully get it. They're amazed, but they're yet to really embrace Jesus by faith. 
And the story this morning, Mark's account of it, finishes with the statement that although they were amazed beyond measure and marveled, that they failed to understand because of the hardness of their hearts. That's what Mark said about this moment. I'll quote it to you, Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and 52. Then Jesus went up into the boat, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. For now they're amazed in this moment, but they're still not really getting it. And here's the thing, it wasn't Jesus' performance that kept them from progressing from amazement to faith. Because amazement steps back and wonder, trying to process what you've seen or, or what you've observed, but faith steps forward in trust. What's kept them from stepping forward from amazement to faith was not Jesus' performance. It was their hard hearts, Mark's gospel tells us, and their unmet expectations. You see, Scripture, it gives us imagery to understand this. It gives imagery of a heart of stone versus a heart of clay that's pliable. The statement reminds us when it says in Mark's gospel that their hearts were hard, it reminds us of Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus, where Pharaoh would harden his heart, where the miracles that he'd observe wouldn't humble him and cause him to yield to how God was calling him to yield and obey. It feels like the disciples are now doing the same thing. It's the same word Jesus would use when rebuking the Pharisees for the hardness of their hearts, their unwillingness to recognize what God was doing among them and to yield to him. The disciples here didn't freak out and fail to see Jesus as capable or glorious because they were dumb. It's because their hearts were hard. Mark's little comment and commentary he adds says not that they were stupid, but that they were stubborn. They were unwilling to yield to the one that, yes, superseded some of their expectations, but he simultaneously left other expectations unmet and even flipped on their heads. And I think by and large, we could say the same about many. Those who encounter Jesus fail to see Jesus for who he is because of their own expectations of who he should be and what he should do. Because Jesus failed to meet those expectations, they failed to have faith present in their lives. And if we're going to be people of faith, even when we end up in a storm, we have to have a very loose hold on our expectations of who Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. I'll tell you, even in my own life this week, I've seen where some of my expectations for what Jesus should do and, and how he should do it or what he should not do, it became evident that they were clearly not in line with what he's doing. And that leaves me personally with the choice and opportunity to embrace faith, a choice to continue following Jesus even when he isn't doing what I think he should do or doing it in the way that I think he should be doing it. Remember, it wasn't, it isn't Jesus' performance that keeps people from progressing from amazement that steps back in wonder to faith that steps forward in obedience. It's not Jesus' performance that keeps us from doing it. It's because of a hardness of heart, an unwillingness to be pliable rather than rigid, to be humble rather than angry, to be patient rather than proud. It's because of our expectations of who he should be and what we think he should do. I can miss Jesus in the midst of life's chaotic and heartbreaking scenarios like they did. They missed him even when he stood right before them. In our story, it seems as though they weren't really even afraid of the wind. They were frustrated and exhausted by it. It was Jesus walking to them, though, that terrified them. 
They see Jesus and think he's a ghost, a phantom, some creepy demon thing coming like the grim reaper to drag them down into the abyss, down into the sea. You may remember that ancient people groups outside of the Bible, but even included in the biblical authors, viewed the sea as the hotbed of chaos and evil. There's a reason why when in the creation story it says that God created the heavens and the earth and that the earth was formless and void, the idea is that it was kind of a chaotic scene and God hovered over the waters of the sea and then created order out of chaos. There's a reason why later at the end of the book, it says in the book of Revelation that there will be no more sea. It's not because there will not be a body of water or an ocean, but because the sea in the ancient mind was the hotbed of chaos and evil. The Abbasalo, the most ancient writings that have ever been found are Akkadian and Sumerian writings that talk about the original battle, the conflict between good and evil was fought over the waters of the sea and that the evil that wages war against us emerges from the sea. So when you see in the Gospels Jesus doing things on the sea, you need to recognize this isn't just about Jesus having power over water. Like what's insoluble, he can make it solid and walk upon it. It's bigger than that. It's making a statement that Jesus had authority even over evil and chaos. But here all of a sudden they think that evil has sprouted and emerged from beneath the bottom and he's here to reach out and to grab them and drag them down with them. In our story today, they were more alarmed by Jesus than they were comforted by him because Jesus hadn't done what they expected him to do. They'd expect their friend Jesus to keep them from the storm rather than send them, remember, even pushing them by force into the storm. I mean, why would an all-powerful one cause us to face something so difficult and overwhelming when he could have just spared us from it? They were more alarmed in this moment than they were comforted. They expected that he'd calm the storm rather than walk to them on the chaos, proving that he wasn't limited by it or subject to it in order to meet them in their disappointment and fear. He didn't just snap his fingers to make the situation change. No, he showed up in the midst of their disappointment and fear. He showed up to stand with them. The other gospels even make it clear. He stood outside of the boat until they invited him in as they were very afraid. And as he stood there, he challenged them saying, it is I, verse 20, do not be afraid. I mean, when you pause to think about it, if Jesus' goal was just to rescue them, he didn't even need to come to them. He could have said a prayer from the shore. But Jesus was not determined to keep them from the storm. He was, however, committed to using the storm, which is not exploitation. It's redemption. Because there are moments where grace saves us. God's grace saves us and spares us from the pit and from adversity. But there are, however, stretches in time where you will discover that grace walks you through the pit, where you pass through even the valley of the shadow of death. You know, there are two stories in the New Testament where the disciples are found on a boat out at sea in a storm. But you remember that Jesus reacted differently in those two stories. One where he was asleep when they woke him up and he spoke a word and the storm, it died. He saved them from the storm. In this moment, though, Jesus doesn't really save them from it. He miraculously takes them through it. Because the other two Gospels make it clear in this moment that Jesus didn't cause the caused the storm to cease immediately, it raged on until he entered their boat with them. 
And John tells us that he, at the same time that the storm then ceased, Jesus caused it so that they miraculously reached their destination in that same instant, with both the storm ceasing and them arriving safely ashore. So picture the scene. Jesus up on the mountain alone, he's praying, apparently able to see the disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, struggling out there for a solid six hours, making it only about three miles into the wind. It's a mess, the situation that they're in. And it seems to imply that Jesus is not just praying for himself, but he's praying for them. Around 6 or 7 p.m., Jesus is watching them as the sun is setting. Several hours later, at the fourth watch, between 3 and 6 a.m., he shows up under the moonlit sky. Oh, he saw them, no doubt, hours before he came to them, but he allowed them to endure a storm, to face adversity. He waited to come to them and to end their battle and frustration. He waited. You see, our theology allows for a heavenly father who uses, I will not say with certainty that he always causes, but he does promise to always use the difficult seasons that you and I face to shape our spiritual maturity, the spiritual maturity of his dearly beloved children. And remember, when you face a storm, these are not exclusive things. Even Jesus suffered. And these are not empty things. These are not without purpose. He redeems them. These are not eternal storms either. There's resurrection. There's new life where there will be an end to storms and adversity and suffering. Oh, remember that God allowed even his own son to suffer and die on a cross because there was an end goal of redemption and restoration on the other side of that cross and tomb. But if we're honest, we'd have to admit there's like this subtle tension that exists in our lives. When we follow Jesus and he allows a storm to enter our lives, the truth is we react more like we are spooked by a ghost than that we perceive and see Jesus' gracious and precious hand in the midst of the storms that we face gently guiding us. We need to remember that storms aren't necessarily evidence that we've done something wrong. Because so much of the time that we ask ourselves and others is, what did I do to deserve this? Although some storms are corrective, think of Jonah, some are directive, think of the Apostle Paul, who God will direct to a new destination through a storm. I think of even in my own life, the way that God has used adversity in my life to lead and guide my life to different people and places and new seasons in life. Other storms are simply instructive. They're teaching us. God allows them to mature and develop us. And for this storm right here with the disciples, they're in this storm because they obeyed Jesus' command. But if I'm a disciple on the boat with them, I'd probably be thinking, maybe even beginning to voice and to say, after several hours of rowing, after the waves are pitching us every direction, after seeing a couple of guys over the rails throwing up and doing these shift changes where you're done rowing, we're making no progress, put me there, I know what I'm doing, and shifting around and around and again, At some point, I probably would have spoken up and said, wow, Jesus, is this really how you treat the people that you love? Is this how you treat your friends? Because you remember, they were sent into the storm by Jesus. The reason they were there is because they obeyed his instruction. Have you ever heard yourself saying those words? Looking at the storm that you face, or just looking at what life has looked like for you and all the brokenness that mars your life and existence. And beginning to question, wow, Jesus, 
Is this how the, the people who love you are treated? Is this how you treat the people who serve you? I thought I'd get better if I obeyed you, Jesus. Instead, I just feel like I'm rowing against the wind and gaining no traction in life, where everything feels like an uphill battle, where I'm starting to wonder if I'll sink, where I'm definitely believing that there's no real progress because I feel like I'm still stuck where I've been for so long. You see, you and I need to be aware of our expectations and even our stubbornness. Quoting author and pastor Paul Tripp, he said, Jesus will take them where they did not intend to go in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. Jesus is growing their faith here. You remember that we're in the middle of this series on the seven signs in John. You remember John doesn't use the word miracle when he describes these miracles in the life of Jesus. He instead refers to them as signs because as a sign, they point to a reality outside of themselves. But some suggest that this moment when Jesus walks upon the water is not actually one of the signs that should make the list of seven that John utilizes. Instead, they say that this moment where Jesus walks on the water is really the second part of the sign where Jesus has just completed multiplying the loaves and the fish. This, they would see as just the continuation of the signpost that John was already erecting to point us to a truth and reality outside of itself. Because at the end of the changing or the multiplying of the loaves and fish, you remember that the crowd was determined to use Jesus. Please hear me. The crowd was determined to use Jesus by making him their king. He would become their military leader and their meal ticket. And Jesus had become simply a means to an end for them. And he wouldn't have it. He refused to be their king, and he left the crowds to go off alone to be with his father instead. And this moment then, on the heels of that, where Jesus shows his amazing authority and power to walk upon the sea... It proves that Jesus can't be used or controlled by anyone. He will not be exploited. He won't allow himself to be used to advance our own agenda. And the truth is we can be guilty of doing the same thing, of attempting to use God for our own means and the advancing of our own agenda. When we say, God, I will serve you if, or Jesus, I'll follow you as long as, If you say that, then your real God is the thing on the other side of that if, on the other side of the as long as. As long as you get me that promotion, if you provide me with a partner, as long as you carry me through this financial crisis and get my accounts back to where they were at at X amount of dollars, if you say that, your real God is the thing on the other side of the if, on the other side of the as long as. You see, Jesus in the story, he he makes it very clear. He will not be exploited by you or I. Look at him in the story. He has complete authority of things that are raging outside of our control. And he will not do our bidding, but he will come to our side to dispel our fears in the midst of the chaos. As one preacher famously said, he said, the bread miracle wasn't enough. You needed the storm miracle to see that you must drop your conditions when you come to Jesus Christ. He is an uncontrollable force. So if a sign exists to point beyond itself, what does this sign then point our attention to? What's pointing our attention to the true identity of Jesus yet again as being God in the flesh who walks among us. 
And the sign also reveals Jesus as our safe harbor who can shelter us in the midst of the storm. You see, for me, when I'm in a storm, I just want out and I'm just asking that it ends. But faith in Jesus is willing to pray, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And what do you want to teach me as I face this storm? Faith is what looks to Jesus, not just demanding that he rescues me from the adversity or the storm, but it enables me to thank him even that he's present with me in the storm. And that he's also always able to both carry me through the storm and he's always faithful to bring good things from the storm. You see, our story reveals Jesus to be our safe harbor who can shelter us in the midst of a storm. Let me just give you three simple thoughts, lines of application for us to wrap up with as we transition towards communion. Three simple things of application, three things that you see Jesus do in the story. The first is that Jesus reveals God in the storm. This is what Jesus does, I think, even in our own storms. He reveals God in the storm. For them, they're suffering and overwhelmed. The storm has rattled them. But then Jesus arrives. I'm reminded of someone else in the Old Testament who had been through quite the storm himself, Job. The storm that he faced in life took absolutely everything from him. And he begins to cry out in the book of Job. He's asking, if there was only a mediator in Job chapter 9 between God and man, between me and him, someone who could represent God to me and me to God, someone, he says, who could place his hand on me and his hand on him and explain the two of us to each other. If only someone existed like that, the New Testament would answer Job's question. It would answer his desire in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where it says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But before that climactic moment where Job cries out for a mediator in the little book that carries his name, he first explains how different God is from man earlier in Job chapter 9, where he talks about who, who is he compared to me and how would we ever understand each other? He moves the mountains. He shakes the earth. He, God, walks upon the sea. See, the Old Testament had commented that one of the unique differences between God and man is that man finds the sea to be terrifying and terrible and unstable, but that God walks upon the sea. The psalmist will echo Job's statement as he reflects on God's deliverance of his people at the hand of Moses from the authority of Pharaoh and through the Red Sea. It's what we read as our call to worship this morning in Psalm 77, verse 19, where it says in the New Living Translation, your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. Still another translation says it this way, your way went through the sea and your paths through the great waters, but your footprints remained unseen. You see, the Old Testament tells us that one of the ways that you know God is God and we are not is that he alone can walk upon the sea, making a path where there was no path, making a way where there was no way. And in this moment, the guys are seeing Jesus with greater grandeur and clarity. This mind moment was huge in the minds of the disciples and the first century readers, because according to the Old Testament, only God could do this. And because of what it records for you in verse 19, look in your Bible, where it says, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. 
Some commentators are quick to point out that that word that's used there, the Greek word for walking, is a unique one. That there are many choices that could have been used, but the one that was chosen to be used by John communicates to amble or to stroll, or even according to one source, to sightsee. That the term that it used to describe Jesus walking upon the sea is that they, they watched as Jesus kind of just meandered about. It's in Mark's gospel where what John seems to hint at, Mark makes more clear when he penned the words saying in chapter 6, verse 48, he says, and Jesus would have passed them by. That statement would have taken their minds back to the book of Exodus. Don't overlook that. He would have passed them by. I mean, why does it say that? Why does it say that Jesus would have passed them by? Is it because as he was out walking along the sea, he was really headed somewhere else and just happened to notice the guys out of the corner of his eye and then walked over towards them? Or is it just because this is like Jesus' weekly or, or evening kind of repetition and his pattern that every night after the guys went to bed, he went for a walk out on the water and, and this is just what he did every night, but this night he found some helpless people that he could actually help? Well, scholars agree that that's not it at all but that it instead is a reference to God revealing himself to his people in Exodus, specifically in chapters 33 and 34. At this climactic moment for Moses and God's people to have God show up in all of his glory and splendor and pass by them, you remember. God revealed his character to them, quoting from Exodus 34, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's very specific verbiage used here in our story this morning that would take the mind of the reader back to the Exodus and now to include Jesus being present on the earth as the way that they think of God now revealing his nature and character as God would once again pass by humanity, revealing himself to us in the person of Jesus. You see, this moment makes a very clear statement through Jesus' actions. He's saying, I'm not only greater than Moses feeding you in the wilderness, I am the God of Moses who can part the seas, who can walk upon them, who has authority over them. Think even of Jesus' comments as he responds to their fear in verse 20, where he says, it is I, do not be afraid. In Exodus 3.14, the exact same phrase is used in the Greek Septuagint translation of the ancient Hebrew scriptures. That same word comes up where Moses is at the burning bush and he says, God, who are you? And God responds and says, I am who I am. I miego in, in, in the Greek language. I am. Jesus uses that same exact verbiage here. Jesus is placing himself atop the mountain with Moses. Jesus is saying the one who, who revealed himself in that moment is the one revealing himself present here with you. I am, he says. That's who's here present with you, so do not be afraid. Jesus is making a very clear claim to deity here, something that the early audience and readers would not have overlooked. Oh, think about what Jesus says to them in this moment. For Jesus to tell them not to be afraid before he even calms the storms, is to communicate to us that it's possible for us to live by faith and to experience peace even in the midst of a storm. I mean, track with me, think about this. The reason for them not needing to fear was not that Jesus came and stilled the storm. It's that Jesus had power over it and all of a sudden showed up and revealed himself as being present with them and they knew that he loved them. 
My friends, there's a reminder here that we can have peace even if you find yourself right now in the midst of a storm. Because Jesus can drive the storm out of our hearts before and regardless of if he stills it in our lives or in our family or in our workplace or any other place in your life that you're facing pain and opposition. There's a peace to be had in your heart today if you'll embrace by faith Jesus, allowing him to reign as the prince of peace over your life. Well, there's three things Jesus does. The first is that he reveals God in the storm. He could have done it on the hillside, but he did it in the middle of the sea. He could have revealed things to the disciples in a more comfortable set of circumstances, but sometimes we don't truly hear him or see him in those comfortable places. That's why C.S. Lewis famously said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Jesus reveals God in the storm, but then in the story, Jesus also, a second thing, he brings good stuff from the storm. That's the second thing. He brings good stuff from the storm. They were just looking to skirt the land to move to another community that really wasn't that far from where they were going, but the wind would push them out into the middle of the lake as they strained. But when Jesus would step on the boat, not only would the storm cease, but they'd find themselves on a beach in another community. You see, if they had not been blown off course, though, they would have never seen God in the storm and experienced the good things that came from the storm. There was a byproduct to this moment. You see, John's gospel records the byproduct where Jesus now will teach that he was the bread of life coming down from heaven, the only thing in the world that could give life actual meaning and purpose that could move your life from just existing to actually living. But Matthew and Mark, they also tell us that an entire crowd arrives around him, recognizing him and bringing their sick to him so that they could only reach out and touch his garment. And when they did, they were made well. Seemingly, the story of the woman who had done just that to Jesus and found healing and hope had gotten out and all of these people came and were healed and made whole. Please hear me say, Scripture doesn't say that God is the cause of all of our suffering. However, it's perfectly clear in promising that God is more than capable of redeeming and using all of our suffering, that he brings good stuff from the storm. It's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, you remember, he looks at his brothers and says, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's Romans 8, 28 that says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, who says, He will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. Our comfort and hope is that no matter what happens, no matter how far off course the storm may blow us, our hope is that Jesus can walk on the water and that he can bring good out of anything. Oh, in the story, Jesus reveals God in the storm. He brings good stuff from it. But the story is about God coming near in the storm. That's the third and final thing. It's about God coming near in the storm. Don't you understand that, that it is never ever that you are alone with your life, your difficulty with your storm. My friends, the sermon that you and I need to preach to ourselves again and again is that I am never alone that Jesus would hang on a cross and ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you could receive the promise that he would never leave you nor forsake you? 
Again, John's gospel, he was drawing near the boat. Or Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 48, where the Greek linguist, Dr. Weiss, he looks between the context and the second sentence structure saying that, that what it communicates to you and I is that he, Jesus, was desiring to go to their side. That that's what led him out upon the waters to be with them. The Old Testament had said it in the book of Psalms that God is near the brokenhearted. The New Testament, whoever he or she was who authored the book of Hebrews, says that he sympathizes with our every weakness, with our every struggle, that he suffers with us quite literally. My friends, don't settle for just being impressed with or amazed by Jesus. Choose to embrace faith in Jesus even in the midst of the darkest of nights. Because in those moments, you and I, we can assume that God's disinterested and detached, that he doesn't see it, that he doesn't care, that he can't be trusted, we can begin to think. But the story tells me that all the while he was desiring to go to their side, and that's precisely where he arrived. He was with them. You know, after the miracle sign of the loaves and the fish, for the disciples, instead of seeing the presence of God and his commitment to being their eternal Savior, the bread of life, they saw instead just the presence of a liberator who'd liberate them from the oppressive regime, the Romans who presided over them. And it sold Jesus short of who he was and what he was committed to do, what he was committed to do at great cost even to himself. I think you and I, we need to be careful to not pre-write the script for who Jesus is and what he should do. Even in tragic situations that we've seen in our world around us in just the last few weeks, like an earthquake in Morocco, or dams failing in Libya, or cancer diagnosis, or the lingering pain of dreams going unmet, or whatever other situation or storm followed you here today. You know, I want to transition. Let's, let's approach the Lord's table together. So Casey, why don't you come up here and prepare to lead us? And I just want to close by sharing this with you. Every other time in Scripture where God reveals himself as the great I am, he warns those who are present that you stand upon holy ground. And it creates fear within them because they were to be afraid of being in the presence of the one who is the eternally existent, all-powerful God. But this time it's different, isn't it? It's flipped on its head. Where God amongst us, Jesus, reveals himself as the great I am. And rather than saying, be very afraid and take off your shoes, he tells them and said, welcome me in and do not be afraid. So what's changed? Why is it that before it was such a dangerous thing and now the danger, the sting of it seems to be removed? Well, the language used in the gospel accounts here, especially in Mark's gospel, but really in all three, takes our minds back to another boat of an ancient prophet, the prophet Jonah, who also was in a body of water with a storm that was raging, and with all of these men afraid, asking, how will we be spared? But the difference between Jesus' story and Jonah's is that Jonah speaks up in his story and says, the only way for you to be spared is for me to plunge into the deep, which doesn't happen in Jesus' story. Or does it? Because I think the gospel writers, what they're actually doing is wanting you to back up and view this story in light of the greater story of Jesus' life, where Jesus would stand up and say, you will only be spared 
if I plunge down into the depths. Remember, the sea is the hotbed of evil and chaos. It was bigger than just a body of water to them. It was evil chaos. This was the the eternal battle. This was the ultimate cosmic uh, battle duel between right and wrong, good and evil. You see, if you step back and view this in light of the whole story of the gospel, you hear Jesus even say, a greater than Jonah is here. For Jesus did come ultimately to calm all storms, to still all waves. He came to redeem creation and to restore it to its prior glory. He bring to bring an end to sin, sickness, suffering, sorrow, and death, which he successfully did, but only after he willingly threw himself into the sea, embracing the cross. You see, the storm wasn't calmed until it swept him away. It cost him everything. He too will say, as Jonah did, you will only live if I die. And like Jonah, after three days, he would re-emerge alive again. Leaving us now to never be able to say that, God, you don't care. Because he did not abandon you in the ultimate storm, the, the storm of eternal justice against evil itself, the forces of hell. Instead, he took your place on the boat and plunged into the sea. What would ever make me think then that he would abandon me in the smaller storms of life if he took the fall for me in the greatest storm of God's eternal justice? You see, we trust the one that left his safety and comfort to walk into humanity's storm, the storm of eternal justice, not just to be with us, but to suffer and die for us, to end the biggest storm, the eternal one, so that he could quiet every storm for all of eternity and say to us, enter into the rest that I have prepared for you. Oh, don't just be impressed or amazed by Jesus today. Choose today to place faith, your faith in Jesus, even in the midst of the storm, because he is our safe harbor amidst life's storms. Jesus, thank you that this is who you were and who you are, that this is a story about a storm, but a story about so much more. It's a reminder of you plunging into the deep to rescue us forever. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.